thank you for that last song. That is very fitting and proper to our text tonight, as you're going to see. First of all, I will read uh, our text tonight from the 19th chapter of Luke, verses 1 through 10. Very familiar story. That's Luke 19, beginning with verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, or I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when he saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone into the house to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, The half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. This is is a Charles Spurgeon day because uh, Charles Spurgeon, the famed Victorian preacher who preached to a standing uh, room only, a crowd of some 5,000 in the morning and 5,000 in the evening, uh, the great Spurgeon also established a pastor's college which exists this day. And in his day, there was a famous feature of his pastor's college called the Question Oak. It was a large tree on the grounds where his home stood, where students would gather on Friday afternoons for question and answer with the great Spurgeon. I'm sure some of his lectures to his students came out of that. And then as a part of it, a student would be called on to preach an extemporaneous sermon in front of his classmates and the great Spurgeon. And on one memorable occasion, Spurgeon called on a student to give a message on this text, on the message of Zacchaeus. So the student rose, and you can imagine how he felt. And he said, Zacchaeus was of little stature, and so am I. Zacchaeus was up a tree, and so am I. Zacchaeus came down. And so will I. And as the students sat, Spurgeon led them in applause. Zacchaeus' uh, escapade makes a fun story. And so it is the story that uh, we sometimes have in children's songs. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. 
And there is humor in this story, if you step back and look at it. But the story occupies a very serious place in Luke's account of Jesus' life because it is Jesus' last personal encounter before his arrival in Jerusalem and the events of his death. So as you're looking at Luke, all that remains in Luke's gospel is the telling of the parable of the ten minas, and then comes the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And very significantly, as you heard in the reading of the scripture this morning, when you come down to the summary line of the purpose of Jesus' ministry at the end of the road, you read these words. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. That saving the lost is what Jesus is about. So a very, very key statement in the whole gospel of Luke. And in this respect, the salvation of Zacchaeus has telling spiritual connections between the two events that precede it in the 18th chapter. In connection with the healing of the blind beggar, it's obvious because the deliverance there is a man lost in blindness and in poverty. And this now corresponds to the deliverance of man lost in wealth and corruption. And it's connection to the story before that in Luke, the 18th chapter of the rich ruler, is also very clear where it is stated what is humanly impossible, namely the salvation of a rich man. That's verse 25 of chapter 18. Indeed, says Jesus, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Impossible. But this impossibility now takes place in the salvation of rich little Zacchaeus. And so this account given to us by the Holy Spirit through Dr. Luke is how the impossible takes place. It is about the power of the gospel, a riveting account of God's power at work. Now, if I were a uh, modern Hollywood producer, and uh, I hope they never do the movie, but if I were casting for Zacchaeus the movie, in the 1940s, I would have chosen little Edward G. Robinson as Zacchaeus. He played Al Capone. He would be a perfect little Zacchaeus. And if I was casting for today, I think I would use Danny DeVito. Those shifty eyes, that swagger, that perfect little big man. Well, from a tax-collecting point of view, Zacchaeus had it made. There were three tax-collecting places in the land that day. There was uh, Jericho and Capernaum and Jerusalem, and he had Jericho, and Jericho was on the crossing of the Jordan River. It was a place rich in, in balsam groves and palm trees. It was a very, very beneficial tax franchise. And as chief tax collector, he was uh, head of a tax cartel, so to speak, a tax farming operation in which his lieutenants would go out and extort money from people, pay off the Romans, and then pay him. So he was kingpin of the Jericho tax cartel, so to speak, and no doubt his scruples were matched by a modern drug dealer. 
bottom line, this man, Zacchaeus, was filthy rich in the fullest sense of the word. Not a likely candidate for the kingdom. No one would thought that of Zacchaeus. And of course, he was hated. In the eyes of his countrymen, his littleness was more than physical. He was a hated non-person, a cipher, his pathetic lowness, so to speak. No doubt some of the locals would have liked to see if they could put him through the eye of a needle, literally. Squeezed out, as C.S. Lewis put it, in one long bloody thread from tail to snout. No one would have ever guessed on that day, on that spring day, that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. But he did. Our text makes it clear in verse 3. He wanted to see who Jesus was. Well, why, we wonder. Why would he want to see Jesus? I think when you look at all the context in the Gospels, perhaps it's because he heard of the conversion of Levi, another tax collector who was now one of the followers of Jesus, who we call St. Matthew. Perhaps he'd heard about what had happened to Levi. Perhaps he'd even known Levi. Because you can well imagine when you're in the same business that you would sort of hang together, sort of a fellowship of the scum. And because... Jesus ministered Levi and others. He had irked the religious establishment. They called Jesus a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was their epithet. So evidently, Jesus had a soft spot for people like him. So I think that may be a reason. Also, I think it's very likely that Zacchaeus found his wealth and lifestyle unsatisfying. A, a sort of dis-ease invaded all of his pleasures. Nothing satisfied. Sort of a, a malady of the rich. It's like uh, Marie Antoinette. It's famous for other sayings, but one of them is, nothing tastes. This kind of satisfaction is what drew St. Augustine to Christ as he wrote in retrospect to God, Augustine speaking, you were always present, angry and merciful at once, strewing the pangs of bitterness over all my lawless pleasures to lead me on to look for others unallied with pain. And again, Augustine said, your goad was thrusting at my heart, giving me no peace until the eye of my soul could discern you without mistake. And I think it's very likely that Zacchaeus, with all that he had, all that illicit gain, all that money, found life dissatisfying, the severe mercy of dissatisfaction. Now, we wonder about this interior drawing as God is, is working on him. And uh, he was uh, in great discord. He was despised by the people. He was a man who probably gave as good as he got but that relentless contempt of his people left him desolate and alone. Thus, you find an inner initiative in this man where he wants to see Jesus and is determined. But alas, 
the end of verse 3 being a short man he could not because of the crowd now this is purely imagination this isn't the Bible but I can sort of imagine that there is a little pleasure that the crowd had closing in on this short man not allowing him to see maybe oh that's your foot Zacchaeus well I couldn't see you sorry about the elbow well this is a man that wouldn't be stopped short or not he had legs and he used them verse 4 so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree sycamore fig tree to find him since Jesus was coming that way to be specific the Bible dictionaries tell us it was a ficus sycamorus a sturdy tree about 40 feet high in its maturity with a short trunk and wide branches very easy to climb Zacchaeus kind of tree now all humor aside a tiny rejected man sitting alone hidden in order to get just a glimpse of Jesus is very touching just to hear Jesus words he certainly didn't want the crowd to know he was there and if you, if you step back from it, seeing Jesus isn't going to change his situation. He'd get a private view. The crowd would pass, and he would remain unseen like an orphan peering through a lighted window on a cold night. Well, you see this interior initiative. But this interior-driven initiative of Zacchaeus is matched by the exterior initiative of Christ. In verse 6, when Jesus reached the spot, the text says, He looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay in your house today. And so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And as the song goes, and as the Savior passed his way, he looked up in the tree. And he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. For I'm going to your house today. Now when Jesus stopped under that ficus sycamorus with those heavy leaves, I think Zacchaeus would have tensed, maybe even had a cold sweat, and then as Jesus' eyes turned up to him, there would be sheer terror as all the eyes looked up through those trees to see where he was. And he may have braced himself to be a spectacle of ridicule, especially as Jesus called him by name. Zacchaeus. Jesus knew his name. What a jolt. Maybe that there had been some encounter prior to this. We do not know, but to have your name called while you're hidden up in that tree would have been a jolt. And I think in Jesus' use of Zacchaeus' personal name, there is a hint of grace because the same eyes of the all-seeing master earlier, according to gospel, John's gospel, has seen Nathaniel under a tree, you remember, and he discerned Nathaniel's guileless character, and here he implicitly discerns 
the wicked, lost character of Zacchaeus himself. What Luke wants us to see is that there is supernatural knowledge. And then as Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' home, he didn't say, Zacchaeus, may I come to your home? He said, I must stay. So, reading this seriously, you see that Jesus Christ himself regarded his encounter with Zacchaeus as a divine mission. And his seeking of Zacchaeus was a work of grace. The exterior initiative of Christ himself. And what you begin to see at this point in the story is that Zacchaeus seeking of Jesus and Jesus seeking of Zacchaeus are both a work of God. And the crossing of their lives underneath that sycamore tree was a work of divine providence and grace. And if I read my Bible correctly, if I understand Ephesians 1 correctly, this meeting was set before the foundation of the world, and a camel was about to go through an eye of a needle. Luke says, He came down at once and welcomed him gladly. The glad leap of Zacchaeus down through those uh, leaves. Some leaves, no doubt, trickling down, maybe a twig or two. uh, An indication of, of what he had been, if he wasn't articulate about himself, what he had been wishing for. And from here on, Apart from the crowds muttering, this is the people in Jericho who knew this filthy, rich little man, that he's gone to be a guest to the sinner. There is only joy, Zacchaeus' joy and Jesus' joy. To the crowd's amazement, off strode Jesus with the half-pint kingpin of the Jericho tax cartel hurrying along beside him in his busy legs. And Jesus and his disciples would spend the night there according to Palestinian custom. Now think of this. The conversation, the disciples, Zacchaeus, behind closed doors. And sometime during that stay, probably after much discussion and prayer, a little big man would formally stand and declare for all Jericho to hear these words Verse 8, Look, Lord, here now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Astonishing. For starters, he gave away half of his riches upon meeting Christ. And then for the remaining 50%, he pledged restitution four times fourfold of the amount of which he extorted and the if that you have implies that he had cheated many people and he was placing his entire fortune in jeopardy you're looking at the context of this in chapter 18 verses 23 22 23 24 and 25 he was effectively living out the command that it earlier caused that rich young ruler so much grief, 1822, to sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. He was essentially giving everything 
to follow Jesus. And he was walking through the eye of a needle, and he's living to tell about it. That little man had become huge. And, and he is huge and immense on the uh, plane of New Testament history. The compulsive drive to make money and keep it was gone. He no longer needed his wealth. He went in mastered by a passion to get, and he came out mastered by a passion to give. He went in the littlest man in Jericho, and he left the biggest man in town. Something had happened in that house with Jesus. Now, we don't have to guess what it was, because Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is the son of Abraham. The answer is that Caius had been regenerated. He was a new creature. Liberating joy of salvation was coursing through his soul. Uh, he shared a faith that was in concert with the justifying faith of Abraham. He was a child of Abraham. He had been delivered by the horn of salvation. Jesus is predicted by Gabriel. He was a new man. That's the answer. And that is why he give, gave away his fortune. I want to I stop right here and just take a little bit of an excursion. It's relevant to the text. Non-believers, that is the people that walk outside this church and fill this city, criticize the gospel as sentimental, unpractical, and they'll use a number of adjectives which I wouldn't want to use. But... If the gospel is impractical, and if it is irrelevant, and if it is of no social use, it's our fault, not the gospel's. Because the gospel reorientates our grip on our possessions. If I understand anything here about what happened to Zacchaeus, and that is a great burden in Luke's gospel. Uh, take your Bibles and turn back to chapter 6, verse 24. That's the so-called Sermon on the Plain. Luke 6, 24. Jesus speaking. He says, But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Now, what Jesus does there is pronounces a woe on the rich because of their self-sufficiency like the rich young ruler that are the opposite of those who would receive the gospel. That's why that woe is there, the danger of material wealth. And when Jesus began his ministry, remember he quoted Isaiah 61, and that's in Luke 4.18, when he said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Because the poor in spirit have a natural poverty in spirit, which is open to the gospel. So in 4.18 and then in 6.24, you have these warnings. Now turn to 12, chapter 12, verses 20 and 21. Because you have solemn words to everyone who trusts in riches. 
But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself and is not rich towards God. Those that focus on their material possessions. Immense warning. Now turn to chapter 16, verse 13. Jesus again. And he gives this uh, axiom. 16.13, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Then turn to chapter 18, verses 24 and 25. Jesus' response to the rich ruler. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, what Jesus is saying over and over again is that it's useless to talk about loving him and trusting him and having sweet assurance of forgiveness and the glorious hope of heaven unless it makes a difference in our material attachments. Strong emotions, sweet feelings, confidence, forgiveness, all very nice if they change our attachment to this world. And if we are rooted in the world, if our possessions fill our, our horizon, they are the sun and moon of our life, it makes very little difference what we say. Now, Jesus' repeated emphasis is that though generosity is not the means of redemption, you're not going to get saved by giving and being generous, developing a generous spirit. That's not going to do it under any circumstances. He is saying that a change in our orientation to this world is evidence of redemption. And I think you can say that it is a pillar of discipleship. I once was preaching on 2 Corinthians, the 8th chapter, which over and over again talks about generosity, where Paul is urging the Corinthians on the basis of the Macedonians' generosity to be generous people. And I said, I said, I said, there is no such thing as a Christian Scrooge. I was trying to shake my people to the roots of their thinking with the very reality of Zacchaeus here. Well, I got a couple of nasty letters that week about grace and being under grace and so on, and I thought to myself, mm-mm, mm-mm. If he hasn't changed your orientation to things of this world, you better take a good look and see if you love Jesus. And certainly as a pillar of stewardship and discipleship, it is important. Well, that's just an aside. Zacchaeus was ready to give because he'd been saved. He'd become a big man. The gospel makes little men big. Now, as we said right in the beginning, it ends with a great summary of Christ's mission in verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Brothers and sisters, Zacchaeus was beyond salvation. You'd have felt that way if you lived in Jericho. I, you, we, 
would have written him off. He had turned his back on God's word and upon his covenant, upon his spiritual heritage, upon the truth of God's word and his work in history with his people. He was the perpetrator and agent of Roman oppression, a traitor. He made his living off the backs of his people like a thief. He loved money. His tax business was the cause of so much injustice. He was the baddest, smallest, meanest man in town. Impossibly lost, except for one thing. He was sought out by the Son of Man. Now, those that are younger here that maybe don't know this term, Son of Man, do you see how it's capitalized? Capital S of Man, capital M. That is a reference to Daniel 7.13 that Jesus makes on his own. Jesus is the one who identifies himself with the Son of Man in Matthew 7.13. And the Son of Man is the name for the majestic sovereign being of Daniel's vision to whom the Ancient of Days has given all dominion and authority. So Son of Man is an awesome self-designation, identification of Jesus with this awesome being, the God who has everything in his dominion, all power given to him. He is awesome God. I think it's very beautiful. There may be a little double entendre here that the Son of Man would also speak of the fact and hint at the Incarnation at the same time that Jesus is the transcendent God-man co-eternal with the ancient of days and is a transcendent God the awesome son of man who sought Zacchaeus and did the impossible now that is why camel-brained donkey-souled Zacchaeus passed through the eye of a needle not as a long bloody thread from tail to snout but whole because the blood of Jesus, the door. The impossible has taken place. Now, if you step back, you see that salvation came to Zacchaeus because he was sought out. It was God who prompted the interior seeking. As Augustine said of God in another place, you follow close behind the fugitive, and call us to yourself in ways we cannot understand. He makes us hungry. He causes us to search. Francis Thompson's Hound of Heaven. You know, I think of my own spiritual biography as a boy 12 and a half years old. It was God who prompted my seeking. I wanted Jesus. There's no doubt about it. He makes us hungry. He causes us to search. But it's also God who arranged the exterior seeking when they crossed under that fig tree. Zacchaeus was caught because in his seeking he was sought. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my heart to seek him seeking me it was not I that found O Savior true no I was found of you 
it was God. Now, with we're here. And if God is seeking you, and you are 12 years old or 14 years old or 20 years old or 24 years old or going right up the scale, it's because you have an interior sense of need or disease. Nothing really satisfies. You're never really comfortable anymore. You're restless. You lack wholeness. You lack a clear conscience. You lack peace. But understand this, in the words of C.S. Lewis, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. That is Christ seeking you. And if that is so, then this evening, by virtue of your sitting here under the words, you're under the sycamore tree. You're in the crosshairs of God, so to speak. And he's calling to you, and he's saying, come down. I want to dine with you. I want your soul. I sought you. I'm seeking you now. And you say, me? This can happen to me? And he says, I am the Son of Man. I am God of all the universe, and I can make you new. I am awesome, sovereign God. And more than that, I came and died for you on the cross. Took all your sins. And I was vindicated by the resurrection because nothing could hold me. As I came from the grave in victory. And you say, I'm too small. If you knew my self-centered heart, you wouldn't say that. And he says, I know your heart. I know every syllable. I know every thought before you think it. And I will give you a new heart, a big heart. Come with me. Will you come? That is the message of grace. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, can save you right now and give you a new life. And perhaps this is the night. May it be so. Amen.